Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter... We're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gerson, and I am opposed to Justin Ling. I'm Justin Ling, and I am opposed to Jen Gerson. Today, we are going to talk about The Thing. Yeah, that thing. We're going to talk about the very important man who's been implicated in a long-running campaign of audacious sexual harassment covered up by a ruthless media strategy. His name will shock you. Next, Me Too has come to Canadian politics. Finally, we are discussing what everybody knew. That working in politics is shit, especially for women and gay men. But hey, it's still better than a real job. Lastly, we will discuss the Iranian protests everybody seems to have forgotten about. Let's get rolling. Before we get started, thanks to our sponsor, FreshBooks. Check out the easy-to-use cloud accounting software that saves small business owners two days a month in paperwork and gets them paid up to five days faster. For your 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section. It is time we discussed the thing. The thing. I'm doing that. I don't care. I don't care how many times you have to do. I'm doing. You're gonna have to cut out every single time I lose my shit. Then okay. All right. Here we go. (laughs) Who? Who? Professional. Here we go. All right, Justin. If we are going to hold a responsible discussion about the (laughs) (laughs) fuck, Justin. 
Last week, all of Ottawa was on tenderhooks after a man named Warren Kinsella released a blind item on his blog implying that a big scandal was about to hit. About a man. Which man? An important man. His name would shock us. But first, we need to talk about Warren Kinsella. Justin, how would you describe Warren Kinsella to those of us who have not received a cease and desist letter from him? Warren has kicked around a bunch of different campaigns over recent years, from Michael Ignatieff, if you remember that guy, to Olivia Chow's failed mayoral bid. But mostly he's lived in political exile. Now he's managed to make himself relevant again and has managed to turn Me Too into something all about Warren Kinsella. There is actually a club in Ottawa, and I swear to God this is a real thing. The club has one rule, and it goes like this. Do not talk about Warren Kinsella, because talking about Warren Kinsella can only make him stronger. Now, I'm normally a card-carrying member, but I had to tear up my card this week after this stupid blog post. And let me read you just one excerpt from what he wrote, because this is the thing that has sent everybody into frenzy and has made every reporter's Toronto editor call them up demanding they get onto the story. It goes like this. There are other men in Ottawa who are about to be exposed, Warren writes. One of these men is very, very powerful. The stories have been known about him for three years. They are in affidavits, plural. His name will shock you. His name is Justin Trudeau, by the way. Well, it depends on who you're talking to. It, it, it doesn't matter what his name is because Warren made him up. And it's so frustrating to watch somebody just glob onto the Me Too movement and exploit it for personal gain. Warren Kinsella is trying to put his name back in the headlines. Um, I, I am going to take a counterpoint on that. I have an alternative theory here. I actually suspect that there's maybe a glimmer of a rumor of a sand of truth in some of this. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are affidavits about... I don't know who the hell we're talking about, Jester Joe or Jerry Butts or whomever it is, we don't even know. There probably is like a, a little bit of, a little element of truth in the sense that there probably are affidavits about one of these guys kicking around that people know about in, a, in an offhand way. What it seems to me like Kinsella is actually doing is what blind items are often intended to do by people who use them in a devious manner, and that is to try and flush out um, an allegation. Like, even the way he writes this, it, you can almost see, like, that's what he's what he's intending to do. It's like, you know, now's the moment for a woman who's named in these affidavits to come forward. You know, it's not for me to name them. It's for them. You're, it's, you know, you, you will be believed now more than any other time. I mean, it's clear that he's, you know, he's a he's a backroom guy and he's he's operating for what intent neither of us can possibly know or say. But to me, it seems pretty clear that this blog is um, an explicit attempt to try and get a woman to come forward about one of the guys that he's going up against. Yeah. And no, I think you're giving him way too much credit. What this blind <laughs> item is, is is basically uh, you know a future check that he can cash whenever anybody goes down. You know, in two months from now, when someone comes out saying, I don't know, Peter Mansbridge was a dick to me in the office. Well, suddenly he's a very powerful man. Ooh, maybe there's affidavits involved. Warren Kinsella is suddenly this savant, this Nostradamus, who knew exactly what the accusations were, even though he obviously didn't. Warren Kinsella doesn't know anything. Really, the primal rule of Ottawa is if you want to keep something secret, the last person you tell is Warren Kinsella. Let's also kind of break down what he's alleging. He's alleging that there are multiple affidavits that have been sealed for three years. Why have we not heard of anything relating to that thus far? The last prime minister's wife was mentioned offhandedly in one affidavit in one lawsuit that had nothing to do with the prime minister, and everybody knew about it instantaneously. I do not believe that multiple women are able to sit in a room and make allegations against the sitting prime minister and have nobody talk about it. Well, and of course, you know this podcast is going to come out, and then all of a sudden something horrible is going to drop about <laughs> Justin Trudeau. Like, like irony Warren demands Kinsella it. did not know about. 
believe me, the other problem too is if there were like serious allegations of sexual misconduct or anything like that against the prime minister, fuck, do you think I'm not going to go after that? Like, yeah. are you kidding me? I could, I wouldn't like just just from a straight self-interest point of view. I make my career on that shit if I can break it. Like every every journalist in Ottawa has a, a personal, a deeply cynical, Machiavelli personal incentive to, to get that story if we can get it to a publishable standard. But I, I, I don't, I don't have any. I haven't even heard a credible rumor of that with regards Just to don't. Justin Trudeau. I, I've heard the rumors. I'm familiar with. There, there the are rumors. rumors but there are rumors. Yeah, these rumors have been floating around for a while. They go back several years to earlier in Trudeau's political career. No one is actually alleging that he did anything uh, illegal or even improper. They were. According to these rumors, which, of course, are almost certainly nonsense, they were all consensual relationships. And now, again, these rumors are almost certainly spread by his opponents to make him look like some sort of Casanova. But even in the crazy nonsense rumors, he still didn't actually do anything illegal or something that would constitute harassment. Even that is like, you know, are they true? Or are they not true? I have I have no idea. Certainly we've heard them. But am I going to waste a, a heck of a lot of my time? tracking down the one night stand that Justin Trudeau maybe slept with five years like it's not that's it's not it's not even who gives a who fuck? gives a fuck I actually don't care now it you're right you know if we're, if those those rumors cross the line into um, coercion harassment sleeping with staffers that kind of thing that would then cross the line into a standard that would be within the public interest but until then you know it's just bullshit gossip from Ottawa and you have to take pretty much all of that with a grain of salt Okay, can we talk about a real Me Too story now? Because not only has Me Too taken out Patrick Brown, but the fallout from that scandal threatens to tarnish the reputations of leaders past. Last week, McLean's published this incredible email exchange sent between top conservative operatives at the height of the 2015 federal election. Now, Justin, the emails that McLean's got their hands on here blew my mind. Like, here we have Jenny Byrne, who's on her way out of running Stephen Harper's 2015 campaign. She's just learned that one of her candidates, Rick Dykstra, has been credibly accused of sexual assault. And she's trying with absolutely zero luck to get any of the old boys on her team to give a shit about it. So there's a little bit of a back and forth. And after being reminded that everything they write in this email chain can be released as part of a discovery process, Ray Novak responds by basically giving this completely bullshit answer. I am aware of the allegations. I have never met the complainant, and I am assured that those who did interact with her at the time urged her to take the matter to authorities. And Jenny responds, are you fucking kidding me? We don't have to wait for the cops, because we just kicked a guy off our team for pissing in a mug. And how low is our bar? And the response? Pretty fucking low. Now we also know that Harper was told about those sexual assault allegations, and he decided to punt. He decided to let Dykstra run anyway. In fact, Harper's just come out of retirement to issue a statement to try and exculpate himself. I mean, this is dynamite stuff, actually reading the email chain of how these things work. Okay, I think there's one really interesting thing in all of these, and it's the treatment of Jenny Byrne. These emails are, let's be very real here, were leaked by Jenny Byrne. And I think this is her sort of revenge. She got run out of town on a rail after that campaign for really shaky reasons. Uh, I spoke to a bunch of basically Byrne loyalists after the election who all told me, Basically, they thought she did a damn good job. It was people like Guy Journo and Ray Novak who were calling most of the shots and who ultimately decided to sideline her. Those are the guys who decided during the campaign that Thomas Mulcair should be their subjective attack and that uh, they needed to focus more on identity politics, immigration, and the niqab in order to wedge apart voters and keep Stephen Harper as prime minister. Obviously, 
all of those things were wildly bad ideas. And Jenny Byrne was oddly the person suggesting that A, Trudeau is their main opponent, and B, going after the Niqab is probably not the most useful thing for the party to be doing. Yet somehow we've all come to the conclusion that Jenny Byrne was the problem of that campaign. And honestly, it's fucking sexist. It was, oh, you know, this lady didn't know what she was doing and ruined the whole campaign for the old boys. And I think it's so shitty to me. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think this is just the beginning of where this conversation is going to go and I'm looking forward to seeing what various conservative MPs do with it because I I know that a lot of conservative MPs are are quite horrified that this exchange happened and that Dykstra was allowed to run as a candidate. Um, They should be horrified, but I'm not sure they should be surprised, right? I mean, uh, after Pachetti and Andrews were were drummed out of the Liberal Party, uh, there was this whole talk about a new process for harassment on Parliament Hill. Uh, They were going to create a new thing in the House of Commons, and there are going to be new rules and guidelines and all this shit. But ultimately, all these decisions fall on the party leader. I mean, this is where the buck stops for everybody, whether it's Trudeau or Mulcair or Harper or or Andrew Scheer. I mean, Justin Trudeau, when he was in opposition, um, decided to fire Pachetti and Andrews pretty succinctly with it before an investigation was even finished. Now the Prime Minister is sort of sitting on his hands and waiting until some investigation finishes on Kent Hare, even though you have now multiple women saying that he touched them inappropriately, and he's being given the benefit of due process, and I, it's not totally clear why you know one set of guys gets it and why another guy doesn't. Yeah, so I mean, I think what's abundantly clear from the last couple of weeks, if not years, is that there doesn't really seem to be a clear and straightforward process for men and women who are dealing with um, abuse or sexual harassment to come forward and deal with those problems on the Hill. It does seem to be treated as an internal party problem, and that is a huge, huge issue. And I want to circle back to this, why Ottawa is so uniquely terrible and why the sexual harassment and abuse there is is, is so endemic. And there are a couple of reasons why I think that that's the case, just based on you know, some of the reporting I've done for The Walrus. The first is kind of touches on where we started the show, and that is the idea of gossip, how endemic gossip actually becomes in political environments. You know, it's really easy to say in hindsight, everybody knew Patrick Brown was a creep, allegedly, you know, but the problem is that the gossip mill is so overpowering and so oppressive that everybody knows bullshit about everybody else, and it gets to the point where it's very easy to dismiss everything, including Mm-hmm. you know, clear red flags, including clear um, allegations of misconduct, because you just don't know where all this gossip's coming from and whether or not there's any truth to it or whether or not it's being being spread by, you know, political rivals trying to stab each other in the back. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that you have a culture that seems to be uniquely oblivious. I mean, like 1970s level oblivious to power dynamics and how sexual abuse works. It is still very, very common for MPs or, or people in positions of power to sleep with staffers. It's very, still very, very common for MPs and people in positions of power to marry staffers and get into long-term relationships with them. And that makes everything super complicated. Secondly, you have this environment where staffers and volunteers and party members and MPs are coming from all over the country. They're leaving their homes, they're leaving their spouses, they're leaving their families, and they're setting up shop in this incredibly intense, high-stress environment. It's it's a lot like university. It's a lot like what happens in you know, a university dorm. Everybody gets drunk. Everybody hangs out to, out with one another. Everybody is sort of cliquey and, and interested in, in you know popularity games. And those sorts of environments are, are uniquely pernicious and uniquely open to um, abusive power dynamics to, to, to open up. And then, of course, you have a deeply partisan tribal environment where if you come forward and complain to your party leader about an MP or a position in power, you risk 
basically being sidelined, shunted, or fired. So there's really no protection for you there. And then due to parliamentary privilege, until you know this Bill C-65 passes, which it sounds like it's about to do, essentially Parliament Hill staffers are not um, protected by any labor codes due to parliamentary privilege. So there's really no legal recourse for people who put who find themselves in really horrible situations. And then add to that situation, you have a political profession where everybody's work is precarious. If you're a staffer, if you're a volunteer, if you're an MP, you can be shunted off at any time. So the result is that you have this really high churn of, of especially young people coming to the Hill, these ambitious young people looking to get ahead. And that means it's easy pickings for people who are predatory and in power. Yeah, no, I think that's about right. I mean, you know, I've been I've been in a room before, um, you know, with a male MP who was just, you know, openly going on about, you know, the body of some of his female staff. And it, what do you do in those scenarios? I mean, it's very hard to you know sit in that room and say, you know, listen, male MP, stop. Like, I'm not I, I don't want to hear this. Like, keep your mouth shut. I mean, does that rise to the occasion of being reported and having his name called out? Because, um, you know, behind closed doors, he was sort of objectifying, you know, his staff or other people's staff. Maybe. I mean, I've struggled with that. It's hard to deal well, with. And then also, let's not say that this is just a, a, a male problem. Women aren't always innocent of the culture. Like, a lot of times, um, in order to fit in with a bro kind of culture, women conform to it, and they become enablers of that culture as much as the men around them. Yeah, there, there are a couple women out there who I think are complicit in, you know, staffing the whip's office that helps, you know, deep six these complaints or, you know, is best friends with a male MP who kind of, you know, looks the other way. But those are so uncommon. I mean, the reality well, I'm not is, so sure that that's uncommon. Um, I'm not so sure that that's uncommon at all. And in fact, one of the interesting things that I found talking to female MPs is what, an, again, where the generational divide was. You talk to a lot of the older female MPs and they and they strike me as being really uncomfortable with, you know, the Me Too movement and the lack of due process. And, and you know, is it really fair that Patrick Brown got nailed for, you know, accosting drunken teenagers? Is that really fair? And you talk to the younger MPs and it's a totally different conversation. It's like, of course, that's bullshit. I'm not so sure that it's easy. Yeah. OK, I agree with that. But I'm going to use my power to move on to the next segment. I'm calling it Red Stream, Blue Stream. Because these days we are all trapped inside our own little bubbles or streams or echo chambers in our feedback loops. And everyone's news feed is defined by who you're friends with, what news outlets you follow, and where you fit in the algorithm. So I want to just sit here and kind of go through our Facebook and talk about what our weirdo friends are talking about. Jen, you're the political equivalent of a Jeff Foxworthy album. What are your nutjob friends talking about these days? I'm in Alberta, so a lot of things, what my political friends are talking about is, of course, uh, BC's announcement that they are going to try and ban all increase of Dilbit outside of their waters until they manage to complete a more exhaustive study of how diluted bitumen behaves in water. And of course, uh, I think most people in Alberta will acknowledge that this is just, and frankly, I think a lot of people in BC will openly acknowledge that this is an example of ragging the puck. This is this is an example of BC trying to put more uncertainty and delay into the to an already approved Trans Mountain pipeline process in hopes that the parent company, Kinder Morgan, just drops the project because it's just become too onerous and expensive to continue forward with. Your friends sound like a riot. Yeah, they're super fun. I have the best dinner conversations, let me tell you. But anyway, so what's what's coming up in my feed about this is there seems to be a lot of consensus around that point. There's not a lot of empathy for BC's position, as you would more or less expect. But what was interesting to me is how a Justin Trudeau responded to this. Justin Trudeau has come out quite forcefully in Alberta and even in 
Vancouver Island and said, you know, this this pipeline's been approved. It's going to get built. It's in the patent. It's in the national interest. And at a town hall um, a few days ago, he got booed. I mean, he got openly heckled for that position. And yet, to his credit, he stood his, stood his ground. Was that good enough for my friends in Alberta? Absolutely not. The big conversation is Alberta is, is the prime minister doing enough? The, what should he be putting injunctions and court threats and or, or, or sorry should be he should he be threatening injunctions and various you know court um, uh, mechanisms in place uh, uh, in addition to you know openly standing up for this pipeline which we all know he secretly doesn't want so I mean that that is a uh, uh, kind of interesting to me because um, in this case being prime minister sounds like a whole lot of fun you literally cannot please anyone. <laughs> Everyone's going to be angry at you, no matter what you do. Alberta still hates you, Justin, um, but please get the pipeline built. <laughs> Justin, you're a low-T, neck-strap leftist. What's echoing in your chamber of misguided outrage addicts? Weirdly, it's the same thing. It, the, all of my Facebook friends are just yammering on about pipelines. And if I sound unimpressed, it's because I am. A number of people were sharing this one uh, story from Trudeau's town hall uh, in Alberta, where... Trudeau basically said, and this is the headline, no car. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Urban cuts or ocean protection without pipeline, Trudeau says. And there's a quote in the subhead, the only way we can get any of those things done if we do all of those three things at the same time. And my friends, at least the friends in my Facebook feed, were furious. There was always responses basically saying we're being held hostage. The prime minister is talking to us like we're children. I, I one guy on Facebook wrote, "No pipelines, cancel the children's Christmas party." So people were really pissed off about this. And you know, it's it's actually something that I have found really frequently over the last couple of years on my uh, news feeds, which is that certain activists and people of a certain political stripe are so obsessed with pipelines. Oh. Like, they have become this symbolic force in Canadian politics in such a way that I am so mystified by. Um, and I actually find it really frustrating. I mean, you know, it, it feels like we're not even having conversations about environmental policy anymore. It is purely on pipelines. It is the hill that everyone's ready to die on. Everybody's going to die on this hill. We're like, like we're on one side of the hill and you're on the other side of the hill and we're going to climb up this hill and we're going to see who gets to get to the top of this fucking hill and we're all going to die on the hill. This episode of Oppo has been brought to you by our very first sponsors, FreshBooks. Thanks to FreshBooks for taking us on right from the start. Jen, tax time fills me with horrifying existential dread. What can I do about that? I use FreshBooks and I really love it. It's a super easy way to do everything from tracking your hours to working out taxes. Can it help me make my invoices not a complete and total mess? It sure can, you brain-dead slob. Welcome to adulthood, the time in your life when you get excited about accounting. Our friends at FreshBooks have created ridiculously easy cloud accounting software that simplifies these time-consuming tasks. You can send a grown-up invoice in 30 seconds, set yourself up to get paid online, and manage your expenses from their phone app. 
Find out all the ways that FreshBooks will transform how you deal with your paperwork. Go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo, O-P-P-O, in the how did you hear about us section. So if you think back a couple weeks ago, the biggest story in the world was the democratic uprising in Iran. And now it feels like you're hard pressed to find any mention of it in the media anyway. Well, those protests are still happening. What's so odd about all this is that it's the normally isolationist Trump supporters and conservatives who have been the most vocal in their support for the protesters and their fight for liberal rights. The left, meanwhile, has been pretty quiet. So we're going to bring in Kaveh Shiruz to talk more about this. He's a lawyer and human rights activist based in Toronto. Kevin, your big thing is, you know, if Canada's back, like Justin Trudeau keeps saying it is, it's been impossible to tell from the way he's responded to these protests. What were you expecting him to actually say and do? What I expected was international support from all corners, especially with more progressive leaders around the world, which is why I expected our prime minister to speak up. And unfortunately, we've had silence so far. I want I want people to understand why this is relevant to Canadian politics today. Um, and I think that if we do that, there's one thing we have to bring up, and that's, of course, the 2003 death of Canadian journalist Zara Kazemi, um, because I think that this became the beginning of a, of, of a really significant split between the Canadian government and the Iranian government, as, as, as far as my understanding is. So, you know, if we just briefly sort of talk about that, um, Zara Kazemi, I believe, was a freelance photojournalist. She was Iranian by... By, by birth. By birth. Was she in, lived in Montreal. Lived in Montreal, yeah. yes. And then, you know, she was working in Iran and she was captured, tortured, raped and beaten in their notorious Evan prison, is my right. understanding. Yep. And, and since her death, her son has actually launched a campaign to try to basically hold the Iranian government to, to account in, in the Canadian court system, ultimately failed uh, in, in, in doing so, but um, nevertheless, basically created an environment where um, the Canadian government started talking about holding the, Can- the Iranian government to account here in Canada. Um, we've since seen you know a huge amount of Iranian assets in Canada seized, property, uh, bank accounts, cars, you name it. Um, and of course, I, I, I'm not sure it's a direct line, but in 2012, the Canadian government closed up its Iranian embassy in Tehran and, and expelled the Iranian diplomats here in Canada, uh, which kind of brings us to the, the sort of very uh, frozen state of uh, Canadian-Iranian relations. But I want to bring bring up one more thing, and that is it does seem to me like Iranian relations has become a ping pong between the conservatives and the liberals, with the conservatives taking a really hard line stance trying to shut down any kind of diplomatic connection. And, and then when the liberals come to power, they take the extreme opposite approach. They want to open up those connections. They, they, they see um, relations with the hardline government in Toronto as being somehow a noble humanitarian end and seem really willing to gloss over the human rights abuses, the really harsh and repressive living conditions, and also you know, the, the, the death of Zara Kazemi in order to do that. And so that's what I kind of want to talk about with you, because, I mean, you are a former liberal candidate. Is that correct? That's you correct. ran. What year did you run? Um, I ran for the liberal nomination in 2014 in anticipation of the 2015 election. And which which uh, uh, ri- this was the riding of Richmond Hill, Richmond which has Hill, a, okay. a large about 10 percent um, Iranian Canadian population. And you lost that. I did lose that to, a, to another Iranian Canadian candidate who ended up winning the seat ultimately. You know, knowing that, why did you decide to run for the liberal government? Well, I mean, I, I mean, Iran is not my only issue. Yeah. Right? There, there are a lot of policy issues that I care about that, you know, where my values align with the Liberal Party. And with respect to Iran, um, I would say that it, it was not really my understanding at the time that this would be the position of then party leader and now Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I had been encouraged to participate in politics through uh, my connection with former Justice Minister Erwin Kotler, mm-hmm. who has been very active on various human rights files and, mm-hmm. on, on the issue of Iran. And I thought to myself, you know, this if this is the party of Erwin Kotler, it's the party that, that I belong to. Mm-hmm. Since then, though, since losing that nomination, since, um, you know, having 
Prime Minister Trudeau in, in power, I have been... I, I'm not sure. I, I want to choose my words diplomatically so as to not. Uh, uh, no, don't don't yeah. choose your words diplomatically. <laughs> Just let it out. This, um, this is not but, the podcast yeah, to be diplomatic. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I've been I've been a little underwhelmed, I guess, by by what I've seen on the Iran file and other sort of international human rights files. Well, let's get into that a little bit because I've heard this notion over the last couple of weeks that if only our embassy was still open, everything would be different. If only you know we had diplomats there in Tehran, mm-hmm. things would be different. Uh, what do you what do you make of that? I, I don't. I, I have a really hard time getting my head around the idea that if only we had an embassy there, things would be better. I've never quite understood that argument. I mean, there are people who believe in diplomacy and, you know, diplomacy is a, is a tool like any other, right? But, you know, you shouldn't adopt diplomacy as though it's it's an article of faith and not, not to question it. Um, you know, in 2003, we did have diplomats. We had perfectly good relations. We had an embassy. We weren't able to protect our citizen from being raped and murdered in Iran. Um, so the idea that somehow having diplomats on the ground would give us a lot more protection, give us a lot more influence in Iran, I, I've just never really been convinced by that. And argument. perhaps even more relevantly, you know, our embassies were open in 2009. And certainly, the, I, I think there's some argument that some international embassies, I think, were mm-hmm. were, were fostering injured and, and, the, and those fleeing mm-hmm. security forces. But um, it did very little in the grand scheme of things to to improve pressure on the Iranian regime to stop the crackdown. I, I entirely agree with that. I think um, through the work that I've done, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of um, former political prisoners. And what they often say is that international pressure works. Anytime, you know, the Secretary of State in the U.S., or prime minister or somebody would, would speak about their case, uh, their conditions would get a little better, maybe they might get released or whatever. And it's never been sort of diplomats on the ground doing this. It's, you know, prime ministers and presidents or whatever putting out statements. So I think these, these are the types of things we can do even without necessarily having diplomatic relations. So this is one thing that, that's come out, particularly in conservative circles, is this idea that, you know, here right now what we're seeing is anti-hardline protest filled with largely secular protesters is how it's being portrayed, you know, fighting for their rights and freedoms, fighting for their, you know, and fighting for their ability to walk down the streets without the hijab. And it's conservatives who seem to be publicly advocating for these protesters. Well, and maybe you're going to say that this is a misconception, but it, there is there is a perception that the left has been really yeah. silent on this. And, and, I, and, I think, and I think that the liberal government's relative silence on this is part of that conversation. So the question that I just have is, is I'm very confused as to why. I don't that, really get that's, it. That's a great question. I mean, it's and it's not just Iran. I mean, the it's been one of my frustrations because I identify as a as a progressive in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. I find it frustrating that on issues of human rights, progressives tend to be quiet. It seems like we've just given up the field. And I, I would actually trace it back to um, the Iraq invasion. That, hmm. That's kind of, in, in my thinking about it, that's when neoconservatives sort of took over the language of human rights because that's mm-hmm. how they justified the attack on Iraq. Mm-hmm. And somehow talking about human rights became a dirty thing to do because somehow you were justifying foreign invasion. But I, I, I think historically that doesn't make any sense. I mean, that speaking out for the rights of women, for the rights of gays, for labor activists, I mean, that's traditional left-wing stuff that should be done, but somehow the conservatives seem to have cornered the market on that. Yeah, it just sort of brings it in a different direction. You know, I, I think you're right in that, uh, at the very least, the notion uh, is that liberals and progressives have been quieter on this. I think they have, and I think it's interesting to get into why. This one camp is sort of the, the new conservative, which is, you know, one that is not quite a neocon. They're not super into actual interventionism, uh, but they do want to support, especially populist movements or, mm-hmm. or, or demonstrations worldwide. So that's why you have Donald Trump coming out very, very loudly and saying, you know, I support these 
protesters. And then some conservatives using, you know, the silence on the other side to bash them over the head. But the liberal and the, the progressive side, I think, has been a little bit quieter because they're sort of caught between incrementalism of saying, oh, Rouhani's better than Ahmadinejad and also wanting to preserve the Iran deal, which it now seems to be, you know, right. hanging in, in, you know, by a thread here with the Trump administration in power. So there is a fear that if you are too vocal in supporting these protests, if you're too loud, um, it could upset the whole balance. You know, a new government could take over, everything could fall to pieces, or the Rouhani administration, get, you know, either have to double down on, on the hard line or get replaced altogether by a hard line administration, which is a whole other can of worms. So I think there's a lot of philosophizing going on here that, you know, that is kind of explaining the left's yeah. sort of silence on this. Yeah, so, and I think it also matters whether you're talking about sort of liberals or the hard left. Yeah. Um, so with liberals, I think that analysis is, is correct much of the time. With the harder left, um, I think, you know, my problem with them is they tend to view the entire world through this prism of anti-imperialism. Right. Right. So the U.S. and Israel are the enemies and anyone that's against them is a friend just by virtue of the fact that they are against your enemies, which I think is, is very flawed logic. So you end up allying yourself with all sorts of terrible actors around the world. And it gets very strange um, how the alt-right has sort of interpreted this whole Iranian protest issue. Um, and it's funny, a lot of the alt-right have sort of fallen in line with, with, with what Donald Trump is saying, but some have gone, you know, really around the bend into, you know, this is a George Soros deep state conspiracy and all this. But the more you look into it, the more you see that there's sort of an extreme right wing fringe, an extreme left wing fringe that are all sort of coming around saying, oh, this is a plot. This is a uh, globalist conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And you start looking at the biographies of some of these writers who are, you know, on these kind of bizarre websites, whether it's Infowars yep. or, or other sites. And a lot of them are contributors to Press TV. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And a lot of folks don't know what I'll, Press TV I'll, I'll, is. I'll tell you who else is a contributor to Press TV. Ooh, let's do it. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy, he, he made 20,000 pounds. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's, let's, explain, let's explain yeah. what Press so, TV so is. Press, right. yeah, yeah, so Press TV is um, Iran's... Uh, uh, mouthpiece. It's it's English language network that broadcasts in a variety of places. It used to broadcast in Britain, but at one point they, um, I think, broadcast images of a, of a political prisoner. And, and, a Canadian. And some, so, so a Canadian, Mazir Bahari, that's right. Yeah. A Canadian journalist who was being held in Iranian prison, uh, they broadcast a 10-second clip of him effectively confessing mm-hmm. to undermining the state, which he later says was uh, coerced from him through, through torture and imprisonment. Um, and this broadcaster is basically pulled from the air partly because of that, partly because they admitted that they were taking direction f- directly from terror on and not actually that's right yeah b- so operating the, as a news network yeah so in in the uk for example they've lost their license but they still broadcast in a variety of places you can still watch it online and it's um yeah i mean it's a it's a it's a propaganda organ for the iranian government yeah. it is if you're familiar with sputnik or rt Absolutely. in the russian yeah. sense it's very similar yeah, to yeah. What, what, i think i think they, they looked at rt and and they realized that this is a useful tool of diplomacy so justin brought out something that i think we we want to delve into just a little bit and that is uh the iran deal i mean this has definitely been one of the highlights of the obama Era. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that, that a lot of Obama's legacy as a president is going to hinge on the success or the failure of the Iran deal. So I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about that. What exactly is that Iran deal and why do we care so much and why are we so afraid of what happens if it falls apart? Well, I mean, the, the Iran deal was an effort by a variety of um, nations to come together to try to contain Iran's nuclear ambitions. The basic deal there being that in exchange for the lifting of international sanctions, Iran would suspend some of its activities and would allow UN monitors to to go and look at its uh, nuclear activities. The problem there, and I think the answer lies somewhere in between the sort of the Obama camp, which says this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and Donald Trump that says this is the worst deal ever made. It's, It's a useful deal probably in the sense that it has curtailed but not entirely stopped Iran's nuclear ambitions. Uh, but it has some some serious flaws. You know, the, the UN monitors are allowed to go and look at sites, only specific sites, and by giving advance notice to the Iranians. So it's very easy for them to kind of game the system. Mm-hmm. And also, um, 
you know, the, the, the U.S. papers made a big deal of this. A lot of parts of the sanctions were lifted. And a lot of the Iranian money that had been frozen in the U.S. was actually, you know, airlifted and and delivered back to Iran before they'd actually even performed their end of the bargain. So, and this is the, the 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 oft mentioned plane full of money exactly. that Donald Trump has campaigned so exactly. aggressively. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So here here's where I want to bring it back to back home a little bit. What would you like to see the liberal government do? What would make a difference? Or is everything that we can ask them to do really symbolic? I don't think it's entirely symbolic. So some of it some of it is symbolic, but I, I think that the symbolism is not entirely useless. So with respect to these protests um, that have recently taken place. Unfortunately, the only international leader that has spoken out on this has been Donald Trump. Right. Donald Trump is not exactly the you know poster child for liberal democracy or, or you know any 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 value that I hold dear, and so that's very unfortunate. And it also has the unfortunate effect of allowing the Iranian government to portray all the protesters as being American stooges and CIA cronies and, and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. So I think it's valuable for our prime minister to speak up um, and to encourage other heads of state to speak up because then through a broad coalition, that protest no longer looks like, you know. Well, and, a, a and here's here's speech. where I'm going. Here's, you know, Justin Trudeau came to power in Canada on the back of this idea that we're going to try and be like the moral leaders of, 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 you know, Western democracy in the world. Yep. Canada's back, I mean, just as you said. Yep. And not only that, but, you know, we're going to contribute to NATO. We're going to be peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. We're going to be the, the good actors, you know, going right back to yeah. the 90s heyday of, of, of this nostalgia of what Canada always meant. So, like, the idea that somehow we would be ceding the moral territory on this one to Donald Trump is, should it's, be pretty galling. It's, it is pretty galling. Canada Canada's feminist prime minister is uh, standing by quietly while the regime that implements gender apartheid in its country continues to do what it does. I mean, you, know, you would expect moral leadership from the prime minister on, on an issue like that, but yet he's been completely silent. I'm not sure that it's safe to say that Canada has no interest in any of this as well. I mean, I'm just pulling up this thing right now. Canada will provide $100 million in finance for a deal between Montreal-based uh, Bombardier Here's that word mm-hmm. again. And uh, Iran's uh, Keshem Free Zone organization for purchasing 10 passenger plates. Is it possible that part of Canada's silence here is purely economic? I think that probably has a lot to do with it. I think there are business interests that want to get into the Iranian market. The Europeans are, are already going in into the Iranian market. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there are probably pressures on the prime minister um, to do that. But what I would say is that, you know, there, there's, a, there's a cost for doing this kind of business, right? I, I sort of worked on this campaign to get Canada's parliament in 2013 to recognize crimes against humanity committed in Iran in the 1980s. A lot of the people that were responsible for those crimes against humanity are still alive and still in power in Iran. Some of them, uh, surprisingly, are, are now reformists. And, and Yeah, exactly. Reformists, a term that means nothing anymore. Yeah, so doing business with Iran entails doing business with people that Canada's parliament, then MP Trudeau, uh, you know, they've, they've deemed them criminals and having committed crimes against humanity. So, I mean, there is, it really does entail a cost. Do you have any hope for the current round of protests? I, I mean, I, I don't think this round of protests is necessarily going to topple the government immediately. But I think the grievances are not going away. Mm-hmm. Um, and the grievances this time around are far more potent, I think, in a lot of ways. So in 2009, you know, the people were on the streets arguing for relatively abstract concepts, right? You know, electoral fairness, free speech, all that stuff. And all that stuff is important, but I don't know how widely that resonates with the, you know, the bulk of the population. Mm-hmm. But when you can't put food on the table, and you see that you know the heads of the government and their children are, are driving Porsches and Maseratis, and you can't feed your kids. That's the type of anger that isn't going to go away. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on. This has been my really pleasure. Instructive.
I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been really fantastic to have I, you in. Thanks. I, I figured you guys would be fighting more. I know. I was told it would be something else. We'll figure something else. Thanks a lot. That was Oppo. I'm glad you learned something, Jen. I'll do my best to keep up in the future, Justin. <laughs> I'm going to get emails. Uh, and if you want to email us, you can email us at oppo at candidalandshow.com. This was our first episode, and we could use a hand getting the word out. A tweet, a review, and a rating in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. These things are needed to make this show work. And if you haven't subscribed to Oppo, do it now. The next episode of Oppo will be out in two weeks, but you don't have to wait that long for a great Canadian politics podcast because next Tuesday, Candleland's original politics show, Commons, will be out. It goes Oppo, Commons, Oppo, Commons every Tuesday. So if you haven't subscribed to Commons, what is wrong with you? Just do it. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton and Jesse Brown for Candleland Media. I have the last word this week, and that word is doorknob. <laughs> I don't know. It's in there. I read it. If you put it in there, I'm going to read it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.